0: Okay, so uh, we've been working our way through the book of James, and uh, we have a great passage to come to today. James one thirteen to eighteen. Remember how the letter begins. Uh, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials, for they produce endurance and maturity. And then the next section James talks about the continuing to talk on the subject of trials. He tells us that God is more than ready to help us in the midst of trials to give us wisdom and perspective when we ask. Well, in this morning's passage the theme is still trials. But now James is, he has been trying to help us think rightly about trials. He's been trying to help us to, uh, how to know how to respond in the right way. But now he turns his attention to how not to respond to trials. So let's read our passage. James 1.13-18 When tempted... No one should say God is tempting me. I'm going to stop here because um, I think there's a translation problem right here so I'm going to just explain that and then read it over the way I think it's better. Um, In the Greek, there's one word that's translated trial and temptation. the same word. And there's a lot of English words that way. That, that have two different meanings. You look them up in the dictionary, it can mean this or it can mean that. Two quite different things. And this word can mean trial and it can mean temptation. Even those, those two are pretty different from each other. Well, you have to tell from the context which meaning is being used in this particular verse or sentence. Okay? Um, it's clear in... James one two to twelve, which we've been talking about, that he's talking about trials. You know, count it all joy when you face various trials. It's not count it all joy when you face various temptations. But it's trials. That's what he's been talking about. And now it's clear that he transitions and begins to use the same word to talk about temptations. But the issue is, where does the transition transition precisely occur the verses you the word is used twice in verse 13 the second time it clearly means tempted or tempting but the first time it's used could you know does it mean trial or does it mean temptation and that's the question and i agree with the bible scholars who suggests that it makes much more sense if we understand the first use in the verse as trial, as he's been talking about it for 10 verses now, from 2 through 12, trial, 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 and then it begins 13, trial, but then he shifts to use it, meaning temptation. So, for instance, what I'm saying is that instead of being translated when tempted, no one should say, I am being tempted by God I think it should be translated when experiencing trials no one should say God is tempting me so that's the way I'm going to read it now the second time through Okay, when being tried or when experiencing trials no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil Nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So now let's, this is not, he talks about a lot of different things here, but it's making one main point. And let's talk about that. He's still trying to get us to respond properly about, about trials and in particular, as I said, how not to respond to trials in this section. You see, James wants us to count it all joy when we face various trials. But now he's telling us how not to respond to trials. Don't think that God is tempting you when you're being tried. You see, he wants us to he wants to teach us to count it all joy when we're faced with trials, but he also knows that when we experience trials, we get tempted to react very differently than that. And not to count it as all joy, but to basically count it as a curse or a something that's sent to hurt us. Instead of seeing our trials as a gift of love from the Lord, we're tempted to view our trials as harmful. And so, our trials tempt us to sin. We resent them. We get angry or bitter. We make evil choices to try to escape the pain of them. But we don't accept the blame for our sinful reactions we blame God after all he's the one who allowed these terrible things to happen in our lives right instead of thinking I am a sinner who needs to be trained by the Lord in righteousness through difficulties I'm tempted to think God is the one with the problem here He makes it impossible to have a good attitude because of the circumstances he allows me to experience. How am I supposed to be happy when my life stinks? Now, he's not saying that everyone reacts this way. For in the verse before this, he just said, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. That's how he's hoping we'll respond. But he knows that we're tempted to respond wrongly. Let no one say when he is tempted, when he is tested, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, for he himself tempts no one. And then he goes on to explain who we ought to blame when we respond sinfully to trials. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, we should never blame God. We should be careful about blaming God. For our sin. Our sin is the result of our own evil desires, desires which give way to sinful actions. And then that gives way in the end to consequences, death in particular. And then James refers back to Adam and Eve in uh, 16 to 18. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, God had given Adam and Eve everything. All the trees of the garden were theirs to eat, except the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And even that tree was theirs in the sense that the prohibition the prohibition from eating of it was for their good and not for their harm but you remember Satan deceived them into thinking that God was withholding it for their harm and not for their good that he was deprived that God was depriving them of what was really good likewise God has given us everything there is to give us Including our trials. Including our suffering. And he knows just the right dosage of difficulty to administer. At just the right time. And this is a doctor we can trust. He is the great physician. He knows every cell of our being. And he loves us dearly. Some of you have fathers who are physicians. You know, we all know that you can't completely trust a physician just like you can't completely trust anyone. But hopefully you can trust a physician who happens to be your father. Of course, even they might have some other motive to not give you the best treatment. Even they may have some shadow of untrustworthiness. But we can always trust the Father of lights. In Him there is not even a shadow of variation when it comes to His faithfulness and love toward us to do the best thing for our welfare. And then to illustrate this, James reminds us That this great father-physician already chose the greatest gift of all. The gift of eternal life. The gift of a new heart. The gift of the knowledge of Christ. For he says in verse 18, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is referring to the fact that through the hearing of the gospel, God, has, by the Holy Spirit, has brought us to be born again in Christ. This is a greater gift than we might realize. One day, Christ will return and make all things new. New heavens and new earth. One day, He will reconcile to Himself things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That will be a great day indeed. But, amazingly, a little tiny piece of the glory and wonder and power of that day has already been brought to us like the first fruits of our harvest, you know, the first fruits that you pick off the vine or the, the, plant, the plant that you grow in your garden, one little part of, cre- of the new creation has already begun to be manifested in the context of this old creation that we live in. It's already begun to experience the great transformation which we're waiting for on the last day. What is that little piece of the creation that's already started to be recreated? Slowly, one by one, the Holy Spirit is regenerating the hearts of God's chosen people, giving them a taste of the life of the age to come that's why it says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures but remember that the issue here is how we're supposed to handle trials the issue is the tragedy of hardening one's heart toward Such a wise, loving, generous, trustworthy father. The travesty of blaming our best friend. Blaming the one who gives us everything good. Accusing him of giving us bad. When he's given us nothing but good. He loves us so much. That he will not withhold any good thing from us. Even The hardships that we need. So we must accept the trials that God sends us. As from Him and as for our good. Instead of resenting them, we must learn to appreciate them. And the good fruit that they are sent to produce. And we must be in touch with our need to learn endurance, and to learn maturity, to grow. Because of our sin, we need trials. And God in his wisdom knows just how much we need, how much difficulty, how often, how intense, how persistent. We must not let ourselves be deceived like Adam and Eve were. Satan tries to convince us that the one who generously gives us every good gift is actually depriving us. God can't be trusted that, we're, that we are really being left out instead of loved. And we're all vulnerable to his deceptions. He is the one Who chose to redeem us when we were his enemies. The one who proved his friendship toward us beyond the shadow of a doubt. And yet we are perfectly capable of treating him like he is our enemy. And accusing him in our hearts for everything bad in our lives. I mean, everything we have is from God. Every breath, every bite of food, every kind word, every pleasant breeze, every beautiful sunset, every song, every success, every provision, even the gift of having a new heart, of being born again as a child of God, these are all God's precious gifts. And yet, instead of accepting blame for our own sinful reactions, we're very capable of thinking, it's his fault for putting us in that situation in the first place. It is part of our sinful nature to blame others and not accept responsibility for our own sin. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Remember when God confronted one, they pointed to another. They didn't accept the blame. And that's what's in, it's in us. You can see it in little children. You know, it was my brother, it was my sister, it was my friend. There's always project, projecting blame on others. It's never, "Oh, I've done something wrong. I feel so bad." And this is in us all and it's deeply ingrained. But what we must realize is that when we point blame, we ultimately blame God. After all, he's the one who put us in the situation. He's the one who made my brother do this or my friend do this. And when we blame God, we are rejecting His goodness. He works to give us exactly what we need, and we despise Him for it. And then we blame Him for our bad attitude and our wrong reaction. But it's all a deception. Satan dupes us into thinking that if it hurts, it must be bad. That God is withholding the good things from us. But God reminds us that God sends his children only good gifts. He doesn't mean that the bad things come from someone else. He means that we ought to view our trials, ultimately, as good gifts from God. That's how we can say, count it all joy. So you see, dear friends, it's not enough to merely survive our trials. God wants us to appreciate our trials, to interpret them rightly, as sent by an all-wise, all-loving God for our good. Not because they don't hurt but because they serve a good and important purpose in our lives, even if we don't understand right now what that is. We want everything, and we want it now. But God knows what we need. He knows we need training. He knows we need to be worked on. That we're far from being a finished product. We have plenty of spots and blemishes which he needs to work to remove from us. You see, I am an immature child who needs to be trained, raised, taught, disciplined by my Heavenly Father. But like many children who don't think they need their parents' discipline, they think they know everything they need to know They protest when mom or dad says no to their desires. So often I do the same thing when the Lord disciplines me. Sure, it's very possible for a parent to discipline a child wrongly or too harshly or unwisely. But not so the Lord. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but the Lord disciplines the one he loves for our good that we may share his holiness for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it Hebrews twelve six to 11 The question is, are we going to accept this? Are we going to allow God to teach us? Are we going to interpret the circumstances of our lives as his wise, perfectly designed curriculum for us? Are we going to thank him every day that in his wisdom and love he brings the exact circumstances which are best for us? Or are we going to kick against it all and ultimately kick against Him? I love when Psalm 23.4 says, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The psalmist is saying, Thank you, Lord, for your wise and loving use of your rod in my life to discipline me as I need it. And when we can't thank God for his rod and staff, we're ultimately saying that we know better than him about what is going on in our lives. And that we care about ourselves more than he cares about us. Which is preposterous. Human beings have a rebellious nature. It's hard for us to honor authority. We don't like someone else telling us what to do. Of course, it's always possible that those who are in charge are acting unwisely, or even, even maliciously. But, it's also possible that the authority who's acting in the way in our lives is being loving and reasonable, but we're just being rebellious. And that is always the way it is with the Lord, when we're kicking against Him. He is never wrong in his judgment. He's never unwise. He's never unloving. He never expects too much. If we don't think we need trials, that means two things. It means we think God is wrong in his assessment of us. The one who knows all things. The one who knows us from the beginning. The one who knows us through and through better than we know ourselves. We're saying... He's wrong about who we are. We're right. We know. The second thing we're saying when we think we don't need trials, it means we think we're fine without God's intervention in our lives. Just leave me alone. I'm fine the way I am. The Christian faith is not a way of escaping from pain although it helps us to understand our pain and find comfort in the pain and understand the value of the pain and its necessity. And then, in addition, it also teaches us that God gives his comfort to people in their pain. As it says in 2 Corinthians 1.5, just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. So yes, he allows pain, but he also brings comfort to us. What if there were a lethal and painful cancer which everyone in the world had, but some were able to go through a painful therapy to be healed from the cancer and live? Wouldn't you want to do it? This is the reason God has chosen to allow pain in our lives. It's designed ultimately to heal us. Many of you know that Brian is a cancer survivor. He went through a grueling process to become cancer free. Ask him about it sometime. But also ask him if he thinks it was worth it. And ask his wife and his children and his grandchildren. They'll all unanimously tell you it was worth it. In spite of how painful, how miserable, how bleak, and dark the experience was. It was worth it. Now I know that we don't like to suffer and I know that we hate to see our loved ones suffer. That's why God doesn't let us ultimately be the ruler over our lives and over the lives of our loved ones. If I had been the ruler of the world when I heard that Lazarus was dying I would have left right away and healed him instantly and saved his sisters Mary and Martha from all their heartache. I would have rescued Peter from prison on the first night instead of on the last night before he was going to be executed to save him and his friends from their fretting. I would have prevented the man born blind in John chapter 9 from being born blind. I would have prevented all those poor folks from being demon-possessed in the first place. But would all this really have been better? Weren't all those people actually better off for all they had gone through? Haven't we learned from the cross that pain is not necessarily bad? Haven't we learned from the cross that sometimes the best things come through the worst struggles? Aren't we all better off for the hard things we've had to go through in our lives? It's hard to watch our loved ones suffer. And it's hard to go through suffering ourselves. We want them to escape. We want to escape ourselves. But the fact is, if we could relieve our loved ones from pain, or relieve ourselves from pain, we would be cheating them and cheating ourselves out of much good. Think about if God had answered Jesus' prayer and taken the cup away from him in Gethsemane as he was experiencing agony. In the anticipation of the cross, think about if He had released Him from that responsibility to go to the cross. Wouldn't it have cheated the entire world out of a Savior, out of salvation, out of an eternity filled with no pain and no suffering? God knows the beauty that our suffering will produce even though we can't see it so often in the the moment. God knows the beauty that he's working. He's watching over us to keep us from any suffering that's unnecessary. And he promises that we can trust him. That we will never be given any more than we can bear. So, instead of trying to protect ourselves or our loved ones from pain and discomfort, we ought to be praying, crying out to God to give the needed strength and hope, to use the struggles to do His beautiful work, to open the eyes to see how wide and high and deep and long is the love of Christ for them and to leave their hearts grateful, humble, and thankful as a result of the road he's called them to walk in. And when we don't react this way, when we react sinfully, when we don't count it all joy, when, our, when we experience trials, or when our loved ones experience trials of various kinds, when we get angry with God instead of thanking him, There is someone to blame. It's not God. It's our own hearts, our own desires, which lead us to sin. Because when we act like this, we repudiate His kindness. We reject His good gift. We refuse His wise and loving treatment. And only when we accept the blame for this, can we experience His willingness to forgive us, receive us, and help us to start over, and to reassure us of His love? And ultimately, this failure is a failure of realizing His love, and that's the ultimate thing that Satan wants us to wants to deceive us about. He came to Adam, and even and basically, he convinced them. That God didn't love them. And that's what he does to us. This isn't a good thing that God sent because God must not really love you. Even though he's been faithful and done so many kind things for me in the past, this time he stepped out of line. This time he has not acted in wisdom and love toward me. But that's a lie. Now, before we go to the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing a song about the wonder of the fact that God has invited us to come and and eat with him. Um, but just as we do that, reflect upon the the fact that our sin is so grievous because mainly because it's not sinning against a harsh tyrant. It's sinning against a loving and generous friend. And that's what makes it so grievous.